This is a State Library of Queensland podcast. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this podcast contains the names of people who have passed away. One day in 1974, two historians told Eddie Koiki Mabo that his land wasn't his. A moment you'll remember which happened back in episode one. And while that day certainly set the stage for Eddie's quest for justice, the initial impetus for the case can actually be traced further back. It was only a couple of years prior to this that Eddie's family, his wife Benita and his kids, had tried to visit his father back on Mer. It had been 15 years since he'd been home, and Eddie's father was dying. They flew to Horn Island, but when they attempted to make the final leg of the journey, Eddie was told by Queensland authorities that he wasn't allowed to cross to Mare. I think a lot of people don't appreciate that Torres Strait Islanders were also removed from islands uh, and sent to places that weren't their homes. And I think the story of Uncle Eddie Koiki Mabo is, is exactly one of those stories. It actually emphasised the regulation in our life. It actually highlighted to me that this island that was so far removed from the Queensland Parliament in Brisbane, how by the signing of a pen you could have actually affected so many lives um, so far away and be oblivious to it. That's Kevin Smith, Torres Strait Islander lawyer and CEO of a native title service provider in Queensland. He's talking about how regulated the lives of Indigenous people were, thanks to the so-called protective legislations I've mentioned in previous episodes. These notorious Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Protection Acts ultimately gave the government control over the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Kevin has a connection to this story, but not in the way you might think. You'll hear more about this in an upcoming episode, but for now, let's get back to the policies of the era. The Protection Acts at the time in Queensland were being dismantled, but it was a slow process and many restrictions for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders were still in place. It's not like everything changed instantly overnight when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders were given the right to vote in the mid-1960s. Even a decade later, before I was born in the late 1970s, my dad wasn't allowed to meet my mum at a government residence she lived at as a teacher because various parts of the Act were still largely in place in Queensland up until even the 1980s. However, these changes in policy and the wider push for Indigenous rights was also part of a broader international movement. If you really want to see the genesis of the Mabo judgment, you need to really look broadly So you need to go in an international context where the civil and political rights were being articulated in treaties. And so worldwide, people were actually becoming aware with with what their rights were, both civil rights, political rights, economic rights, cultural rights. All this culminates into how the legal team were able to make their case for Eddie and his co-plaintiffs. As you'll find out, while there was a lot going on around the world that would help the Mabo case succeed, there was also a lot going on in Queensland which could have stopped the case in its tracks. Hi, I'm Eddie, is a six-part series from the State Library of Queensland which explores how a man from a remote island in the Torres Strait helped dismantle a 200-year-old law which claimed that, prior to European settlement, Australia was terra nullius, nobody's land, 
uninhabited. It's been 30 years since the landmark case changed not only Australian law, but also profoundly changed how the history of this country is taught, written and critically thought about. Eddie Koiki Mabo, along with his co-plaintiffs for mayor, Reverend Dave Passy, Sam Passy, James Rice and Selawa Mapusali, forever altered Australia. I'm Rihanna Patrick, a Torres Strait Islander journalist, and I was 15 when the judgment was handed down. But do you, or I for that matter, really know what this case was all about? Well, in episode four, we're going to dive right in. As you heard in episode three, Eddie's life was pretty busy. Busy working as a gardener at James Cook University, busy running a community school for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, and after meeting lawyer Greg McIntyre at the Conference on Race Relations and Land Rights, he's also busy working with his newly formed legal team, preparing to take the Queensland Government to court with four other Meriam plaintiffs, James Rice, Sam Passy, Dave Passy, and Selua Maposali. Eddie was dedicated to his school, but he also knew that winning the case was vital for the future of Mer and Meriam because without their land, it would be hard for this future vision to materialise. While all of this was happening in Eddie's life, elsewhere in Townsville, another Torres Strait Islander on the cusp of adulthood was finding his own path towards a future career in social justice. A young Kevin Smith was learning about himself and getting a glimpse behind the curtain of the world that lay in his future. I want to tell you a little bit about Kevin because his story gives you an idea of what was happening at the local level and in a wider context too. Kevin had a lot of experiences that prepared him for his life as a lawyer and later a CEO. He says that growing up, his family was poor like many in his neighbourhood. But with his father's side heavily involved in the Catholic Church, he had access to a good education. I was probably about one of six Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander kids in a school of 400. Um, And you you kind of grow up pretty quickly when you come from a community where, you know, you're accepted and then you're placed in the middle of this broader school community where you saw privilege. So I actually got a sense of the polarity of, of my worlds uh, by every day that I went there. I, my, my going home to my, my neighbourhood, my street, where I had all my Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander friends there, I felt, you know, I felt happy there. But I would, I would venture out every day to the broader world where the broader world, you know, taught me some hard lessons. <laughs> uh, because, and, I, you know, I learned racism in that school. Uh, I learned I um, privilege at that school and, and, the, and power imbalance. Um, and things like that. So um, I suppose I just needed to say that because then, you know, when I left, I actually came down to study um, at Griffith University. So I had probably a, a strong sense of social justice, but not really knowing what it was. After finishing school, traveling and working around the country, doing a variety of jobs, Kevin returned to Brisbane to work for his sister. My sister was in a probably about third year of her law degree. My sister Catherine is now a magistrate. And she was our first, uh, I think our only Torres Strait Islander magistrate. She was working in a law firm that was retained by the Aboriginal Legal Service. So, and working in that firm was Tony McAvoy, uh, who was our first QC, uh, James Evans, Ribna Green, 
a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So even though I thought, am I really, am I really cut out for this law thing? Going to work in a firm that actually was about helping our people and working with my people, it just made me feel a little bit more comfortable in making the transitions. As an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person, just existing is a political act, whether you want it to be or not. So working in that firm with other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders was a good place to test his legal chops. And I suppose it was a, a place where I, I consider a nursery for my, the development of my, yeah, not only my legal skills, but my political awareness and, and how close the two things are connected. Politics and law uh, are inextricably linked. Just a side note, Kevin's sister, who he was working for, is Catherine Peary. Catherine is the first Torres Strait Islander woman admitted as a solicitor, the first Torres Strait Islander to hold a judicial position, and in 2011, she presided over the Magistrates Court on Thursday Island. Definitely one to Google, but let's get back to Kevin and the case. So Kevin was working as a newbie lawyer in Brisbane, and his journey into the legal realm was kind of running parallel to what was happening with Eddie and Co's case in a way. Being a trainee lawyer and a lawyer at the time, I actually, you know, had to make sure the politics aligned with the law. And so sometimes there's a difference between the two and and actually um, knowing your law and knowing the limitations of them allows you to then argue how you might be able to change law to fit that political reality or indeed to actually get laws that protect that political reality. The world is a constantly changing place, and the law sometimes struggles to keep up. Take Terra Nullius, the legal fiction that is the backdrop of this case and is super important to understand. So here we have plaintiffs Eddie, James, Selua, Dave and Sam arguing that, hey, we have laws and customs that my people have been following and practising in the Torres Strait for eons, and you can't say that these waters, this soil, isn't ours. That's a fairly compelling that's a confronting argument because in the legal world, we'd actually justified doing things or, or, or the coloniser had justified doing things on the basis of a legal fiction called terra nullius. And terra nullius is literally, well, terra land, nullius being nothing, but it's, it's no land belonging to no one. Eddie, the other plaintiffs and their legal team were confident they had a case. Australia and its common law of terra nullius was lagging behind the rest of the world. The United States, Canada and New Zealand had all recognised Indigenous rights. And perhaps now, amongst the fight for rights of all kinds, all around the globe, it was the perfect time to challenge the lie. As these systems of rules that a society or government develop to deal with crime, business agreements and social relationships, it's important they keep pace with what is happening in the world. In other words, laws aren't created in isolation, separate from everything around it. Courts don't make decisions in a vacuum. So, in 1982, betting that the social and legal climate of the time was in their favour, Eddie and his co-plaintiffs lodged their statement of claim at the Brisbane Registry of the High Court of Australia. It would become known as the Marbo case, 
as Eddie was the lead plaintiff. The challenge had begun. And surprise, surprise, it didn't take long for the Queensland government to show how not entirely happy they were with the case. They even tried to put a stop to it entirely just three months after it began. Didn't work, though. But Premier Joe Bjorki-Peterson's government was relentless. This time, the state's new strategy to shut the case down took three years. And it's this attempt where the two parts of the Marbo victory come in. And you might hear lawyers, or those really familiar with the case, refer to Marbo No. 1 and Marbo No. 2. The main case, Marbo No. 2, was about getting rights to their lands back on Mer. But while Eddie and his co-plaintiffs forged ahead with that case, Queensland forged ahead with their own scheme to stop them. In 1985, the Queensland government passed the Queensland Coast Islands Declaratory Act, which essentially was an attempt by the state to abolish native title rights, assuming any existed to begin with. The front page of the act says, an act to allay any doubts that may exist concerning certain islands forming part of Queensland. Kinda says it all, really. And all it was was, we're gonna pass an act that prohibits you from claiming what you're saying. <laughs> so this is this is the kind of, you know, this is how confronting when a black man says, no, I've got rights that's seeded, that's, that's actually comes from somewhere else. It's the lengths that vested interests will go to to actually stop that voice. In response, Eddie, James, Dave, Sam and Selua take Queensland to court in what's known as Marbo Number 1. So on the one side, you've got Eddie and his co-plaintiffs saying, no, 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 that Islands Act is totally invalid because it goes against the Federal Racial Discrimination Act. And on the other side is the Queensland government saying, um, yeah, it's valid, thank you very much, and it means that whatever you think you had rights to, well, uh, now you don't. The battle between the underdogs and the alpha had begun. And so Marbo number one was literally the government saying, well, you think you're clever bringing this claim, we'll stop you in, a tr in its tracks and say that even if you did have rights, you no longer have them. We declare them, <laughs> you're not, you can't have them. But the High Court listened to the underdogs from the Torres Strait as it centred around a previous judgement which ruled in favour of John Kawada, an Aboriginal man from the Wick Nation. The High Court, in light of the Kawada case, said, no, the, the, your law, Queensland government, is inconsistent with the Racial Discrimination Act because you're prohibiting them, a, a group of people, from exercising something that they could have based on their race. That's, that's discriminatory. And when you have, in, in, in law, when you have a state law that's inconsistent with a federal law under the Australian Constitution, any inconsistency will be read down. And clearly this, this act from the Queensland government was wholly inconsistent with the Racial Discrimination Act. <laughs> For more on the John Kuwata case, head to the show notes in the episode description. So that's what that's Marbo number one. But that was only narrowly, uh, he only narrowly won that one, 4-3. So in the court, in the High Court, you have seven judges. 
that Mabo number one case was only upheld by a majority of four to three. And if that wasn't successful in 1985, you wouldn't have had Mabo number two. Close indeed. But now that the Mabo number one hurdle had been cleared, there was still the matter of Mabo number two, the main case about traditional land ownership. And so that cleared the way for, for the plaintiffs to proceed with their claim. And essentially, um, as I've said, that basically they were saying that there is this principle called native title. It's recognised in other common law countries, Canada, um, parts of um, Africa, America. So when England colonised other countries, it took its law with it. And there was a principle uh, under international law where the rights of traditional owners would be recognised and they would be recognised via treaties. But we know in Australia, because of the principle of terra nullius, there was no treaty entered. So the Marbo case directly challenged that. Essentially, the argument was, forget terra nullius, the common law should be native title. And so the court, this case actually presented that challenge to the court to say, are you going to perpetuate the legal fiction that, that no one was here? <laughs> and I think that these judges, when presented with the argument that Uncle Koiki presented to them, didn't have a choice but to be truthful and honest in what they were being, what was being put to them. And when they actually, when the court took the blindfolds off of the legal fiction, um, that then was confronted with, well, what do we do? And basically the court said that the Miriam people have been connected to their island and waters from time immemorial. And based on their traditional laws and customs, they do have rights and interests to that island because of their connection, their continuous connection to that country. There's another part to the native title which looks at extinguishment and whether the government had exercised any extinguishment, meaning, in this context, the cancellation of traditional rights. And so if I go back to the earlier case of Marbo Number 1, that act that they were trying to pass was an attempt to extinguish, but luckily the court found that that extinguishment was, was discriminatory and, and struck out the act. Um, and this probably goes into some of the myths around Marbo. While there's an understanding that the case overturned the legal fiction of terra nullius, the court also recognised that the Meriam held native title over part of their traditional lands and that Indigenous people held rights and interests under their traditional laws and customs. By now you should have a good idea about the key parts of what this case was. So let's look at what this case wasn't about. It's, it's not about sovereignty. And the first thing that people often say is, well, the Marbo decision recognised um, that there was someone before and that there were laws and customs. So the High Court recognised our laws and customs. Therefore, um, it actually proved sovereignty. Actually, it doesn't. One of the things that was in the Marbo decision was Uncle Koiki's and, and, and the co-plaintiffs actually did raise that argument. And the court said, we are a court that's created under the Constitution and we don't have the power 
under the constitution to say who belonged here before and whose power, you know. So, so what lawyers say are non-justiciable issue. The court simply couldn't entertain that, that argument. So that's not what it's about. It's not treaty. So an extension from sovereignty is, well, um, okay, well, if, if you recognise our sovereignty, then that, that case entitles us to treaty. No, it doesn't, because treaty are between nation states and you would certainly wouldn't have pastoralists and, and miners involved in those conversations. Treaties are between First Nations um, and nation states. While the case wasn't about proving sovereignty or treaty, it's important to note that land rights and native title aren't interchangeable terms either and mean quite different things. Sometimes people say that native title is land rights. It's not land rights. Land rights are rights that come from parliament itself. So parliament actually says you have rights under a land rights act. But the thing is with land rights is what government can give, government can take away. Native title, yes, you can extinguish, but you can't extinguish without compensation. And I suppose what it's not is it's not cultural heritage. There's a close connection between cultural heritage, so the right to protect sites and and, and broader issues around cultural heritage. But it's not, even though native title can be a right that recognises and protects cultural heritage, Land rights are about social justice and recognition that life was disrupted by colonisation. Native title, on the other hand, in a way, says that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have retained connections, laws and customs related to place. Okay, 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 I know this stuff is complicated and I'm not in the law, so I feel ya. But I hope Kevin's insights offer some clarity into the hard-going legal jargon that comes with the law. He certainly helped me make sense of it all. Now, I told you at the top of this episode that Kevin was a part of Eddie's story, but he wasn't part of his legal team. Kevin came into the picture much later, but when he did, he was in awe. But Kevin remembers how confident Eddie was that they'd win the case. Yeah, he was uh, he was a memorable man, very powerful man, and 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 I I always consider it one of the, my, the the privileges of my life to actually have, have shared just a a very short period of time at a very important period, of, you know, when he was talking about things about about the inevitable. Yeah. Eddie passed away five months before the court ruled in favour of his claim with the four other Meriam plaintiffs. Salua, the only female plaintiff, and Sam Passy were also not around to see this moment. While it must have been a day of elation for the Meriam plaintiffs, it no doubt was also filled with sadness that Eddie, Salua and Sam did not live long enough to see it. Coming up in episode five of Hi, I'm Eddie. The shock jocks of the era, the John Laws of the day, who, if you can imagine opening up the phone lines after the Mabo decision, with people screaming concern about my backyard is going to be taken over. If you thought the court case was stressful, imagine that being played out in the media. Hi, I'm Eddie, was commissioned by the State Library of Queensland. 
It was co-produced by Wendy Love and me, Brianna Patrick. If you'd like to learn more, check out the links in the show notes of the episode description on whatever podcasting app you're listening on.